Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm looking forward to spending time with you today. I hope you've had a good day. I love uh, Psalm 139, one of my favorites. I start, I'm starting in verse 13 right now. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, when your your eyes saw my unformed body, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. It's a great way to start as we are always reminded of the beauty of God's created life in the womb. And Kim Cattola is my very first guest today. She's my favorite pro-life advocate and was... Nice enough to join me today. Kim, welcome. Well, that was a stirring reading of oh, the scriptures, thanks. Bill. Thank you, thank you <laughs> nice, so much. Nicely done. <laughs> nicely done. Yeah. Well, nice to ha- hear your voice. Nice to have you back on the show. I always love when you come on. Thank you. So likewise. Thanks for doing it. So there are mm-hmm. so much, so many things in the news right now. And one of the things that's especially troubling to me is where the United States fits in the world when it comes to abortion. We're right up there with North Korea and China. We are one of only seven nations in the world that will allow abortion up to birth. Um, Let's talk about how significant that is. I know, because we always want to emulate Europe, don't we? Right. So every country in Europe has a much more restrictive policy. Uh, Most of them ban abortion after 12 weeks. Um, many of them, even up to 12 weeks, will require a three-day waiting period, two doctors to weigh in on the need for the abortion. Uh, the idea that uh, there's some sort of uh, natural right, you know, there's some human right that uh, pregnant people, excuse me, Bill, that's the current term. I forgot. That pregnant people should have. To terminate a pregnancy for any reason or no reason, abortion on demand and without apology is the policy that's being pushed for now. Is to, It's out of step with every other civilized industrial country other than, as you said, China and North Korea. Canada is uh, in the hall of shame on the seven-nation, uh, what do I want to say, tolerance parade. Yeah. Um, Canada allows, has a very liberal abortion law, but you know, Canada was in step with the United States in the 1970s when these laws were being written. Most of, uh, the Western world followed the UK that had a pretty liberal abortion law change in the late 1960s. So yeah, it's, um, People, what people don't know about abortion is deadly, not only to the unborn, but really to our um, to our national culture. And if you don't know about all of the European countries that ban abortion, is it after twelve weeks or fifteen? 
Uh, it depends. Yeah. There are, you know, and I, I recommend to you Pregnancy Health News. Okay. They are really doing a fabulous job of keeping on top of stories like this. Uh, they put out a, a piece that has, you can a ask a question about any country in the world, and they will be able to help you locate the policy. Uh, they also lean on the work of the Charlotte Lozier Institute, which is an answer to the Guttmacher Institute, which is abortion advocacy. And really, it still is sort of like the gold standard of abortion research. But Guttmacher is by no means unbiased. And as we're finding out, you know, fake news and biased news mm -hmm. <laughs> are very close cousins, aren't they? <laughs> so, yeah. So um, the Netherlands is probably the closest to what is happening in the United States. They're also known, though, for pioneering uh, child euthanasia, Right. I mean, if you want to talk about their moral approach to the sanctity of human life, the Netherlands has a pretty liberal policy, but not as liberal as the United States. In Germany, abortion for any reason is permitted in the first 12 weeks of pregnancy. But again, that three-day waiting period and other restrictions are put on it. France, abortion on demand allowed only up to 12 weeks. In Italy, the law changed uh, in 1978. It was one of the last European nations to... Uh, join in, of course, because of the presence of the Roman Catholic uh, influence in Italy. But they have uh, the first 90 days as their restrictive period, almost 13 weeks. Um, and in the UK, uh, it's 24 weeks, but they're going back and forth on where that line should be. Uh, Ireland only legalized abortion pretty recently mm -hmm. uh, in 2018. 2018, there was a very, very strong battle for Ireland, and the battle remains with the pro-life forces trying to roll back that legislation. Uh, Poland, I think, outlaws abortion maybe entirely. It's a predominantly Roman Catholic country. So, Kim, when I, I want to shift gears just a little bit because I, I want you to tell us about what's going on with this abortion pill because it's mired in secrecy. There's all these backdoor dealings. There's investors whose names remain hidden and there's all this stuff that uh, they're secretly doing and that's never ever good well you know people have been concerned about public health policy in the united states recently because of various reasons related to the pandemic and i i won't go there i know it's such a divisive topic and again you know it's like I'll throw my expert up against your expert, right. <laughs> you know, and who, and who do you trust, right? right. Who, who should who should you believe? And people believe very different things depending upon the news that they're reading and watching, right? There's a, mm -hmm. a, like a completely separate set of talking points. And it may not surprise you to learn that the same thing is true of the research on what abortion does in the lives of the women who undergo that medical procedure or the, that chemical abortion now with pills. C. Everett Koop, when he was Surgeon General in the United States in the 80s under President Reagan, sought to find the answer to that question. Let's get the research and find out if there's a detrimental impact or if it's completely safe as the abortion industry claims. And his conclusion, Bill, after months of study was there is no untainted research on either side. All of the research is bias-driven. Therefore, I cannot come to a scientific conclusion. And that only tells me that, you know, there's some truth to be told on both sides, right? There's, there's bias, and you, you need to take it all with a grain of salt. But there's some truth, 
on both sides. And in the case of whether abortion impacts women negatively, you know, the findings were that there's at least 5% of women who will suffer severe psychological harm from it. And of course, there are, are physical problems, which will result as well. But if that 5% number sounds low to you, that represents over 2 million women over the last 30, 40 years that abortion's been legal. Mm-hmm. You know, because there have been 60 million abortions. So if we, so if we look at okay, I'd like to find out about this chemical abortion, because that's where it's going, Bill. I know. All, you know, Texas, Texas was very effective in banning abortion. Wow, how many court cases have there been between Supreme Court and the Texas Supreme Court and local circuit courts and so on? Um, if, if abortion were made illegal in the United States today, it's not going to stop. You know, it's self-managed abortion with chemical abortions and pills, which can be procured through telemed, online, or even without any layer of medical protection with a prescription. You can just go to an online pharmacy bill and get these pills. Well, how? How how did that happen? Well, it happened in 1993 under President Bill Clinton. And the abortion lobby, uh, along with a group called Population Control, brought the abortion pill to the U.S. and set up the manufacturer as well as the distribution uh, system because the FDA has to have both before they can do their clinical trials and approve a drug. But they did that under complete secrecy on the pretext that it was too dangerous, Bill. Mm. Right? All those crazy, dangerous pro-lifers would probably blow up the, the manufacturer or the distribution centers. Right? It's the same pretext that they used, Bill, when um, the Center for Medical Progress went undercover at Planned Parenthood and taped them talking about their trafficking in fetal remains. Now, so they sued David DeLayden, mm-hmm. who went, who, who produced those undercover videos, but then they wouldn't allow the videos ever to be shown in any court case, and there have been many since 2016, on the pretext that this is so inflammatory, people will be targeting abortion providers. And of course, the obvious question this raises, Bill, is, Really, people will be so angry by seeing the truth of what abortion is that they'll want to kill, <laughs> that they'll want to destroy facilities, that they'll want to, you know, in some way act out their outrage. Mm-hmm. Is the problem really the reaction or is the problem the truth of what is happening behind those closed doors? So we have no uh, we have no public health policy, which actually ever submitted the abortion pills to scrutiny as to the safety. And when the first abortion, chemically abort, uh, chemical abortion-related death occurred in 2001, um, it, it passed under the radar in the wake of the terrorist attacks in September. But there have been more, there have been many deaths related to chemical abortions. And the fact that the FDA does not include a doctor's name on the documents that approved this, you know, this drug combination for terminating pregnancy should tell us a great deal because the doctor um, uh, who actually was involved in that process said his name is on eight other FDA reviews. Only this one failed to list his name. Huh. Live Action News has a great report on this and m- m- many more stories about, you know, exposing what the abortion pill is and what it actually does. Because 
many young women, especially immature women, Bill, um, will want to go online, will want to remain anonymous, won't even want to go into an abortion facility for a medical abortion. And they feel that that would be, you know, very painful or frightening. So they think that they can, they've been told that they can take a pill to restore your period. It's not a pregnancy, they're, they're told. It's so early, this pill will restore your period. Wow. And so, and so they, they go home and they don't tell anyone that they've gotten the pills. And then they take the pills and some period of hours, sometimes days of bleeding ensues. And, you know, many of them aren't willing to now bring anybody into the story and reach out for help. And medically, there's no one to go to if you got the pills from the internet. And sometimes even if you got the pills from a telemed provider, because they tell you, go to the ER if you have any problems or any you know side effects that you can't control. So yeah, it's, it's a horrific public health problem. And you know, the other thing you need to know is it's a two, it, there are two pills taken over a course of time. Many women will take the first pill and decide they don't want to take that second pill. They've changed, have change of heart and want to carry the pregnancy forward. And doctors have had great success with only 20, uh, over 2,500 births now of abortion pill reversals. And it's simply a matter of giving the pregnant woman progesterone uh, because th that's routinely done in pregnancy when there's a threat of miscarriage early on. It's very safe and it's very well proven in the literature. And yet the abortion businesses who oppose this uh, intervention or, or the idea that any woman would change her mind, uh, that, you know, that anyone would be against abortion for any reason ever, uh, have suppressed abortion pill reversal ads from pregnancy help centers and others on Google and elsewhere mm -hmm. and worked overtime to censor the truth that uh, abortion pill reversals are a thing and that they can save a pregnancy. Yeah. Wow. Kim Cattola is my guest. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, we're going to continue to talk about uh, pro-life um, topics. We'll be right back. with a true star of radio, Kim Pitoli. You remember her from Cradle of My Heart Radio and also um, uh, her illustrious career in radio over 30 years. And she's in the Minnesota Hall of Fame, and she's awesome, not to mention a very wonderfully nice person. And Kim is a pro-life advocate, and she's written a book, um, which you can, if you Google Kim Katola, K-E-T-O-L-A, you can find all kinds of interviews, her book, her music, everything, it's all there. So, Kim, if I could just get back to the topic at hand, I would love to uh, have you talk about this uh, valedictorian's talk that kind of went instantly viral. Oh, my goodness. So, yep, that was the graduation season last year, yeah. and she talked about, um, you know, protecting her right to have an abortion. And She's her in high speech school. was, in, yep, 
high school senior. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the, the speech was titled, A War on My Body, yeah. A War on My Rights. And that is the title of her book. She has a book deal at whatever she is, 18, I guess. Um, okay, so I'm guessing there's going to be some pro-choice ghostwriting going on over there. <laughs> it's a kind of I would agree. Well, and okay, so Gloria Allred and Judy Saunders are on the project. And Gloria Allred goes all the way back to Norma McCorvey and Jane Roe of Roe v. Wade. And Gloria Allred has never met an abortion case she didn't love. Mm-hmm. Um, she has profited over the misery of abortion her entire life. So this book is going to compile stories across generations from medical professionals to reproductive rights activists to prominent women's rights attorneys. And uh, it's going to tell stories. And, you know, what these stories are meant to do is to show you that if you want to protect the life of a child before his or her birth, really what you are, Bill, is a, I was going to say a woman hater, but that would make me a hater mm-hmm. because we, we all know it's pregnant people, <laughs> not women only who get so pregnant. ridiculous. It's, I mean, yesterday, you know, I always, or earlier in the week too, I, I always like to just put in the search term abortion and then refine the results by using the Google search news feature, right? Mm -hmm. You can search by images, you can search by shopping. The first story that came up about how, you know, it's always been tough to get an abortion in Texas, but think of trying to get an abortion when you're trans in Texas, right? Like this is, this is the problem we should all have at the front of our minds, Bill, Right. that women who now want to be men, but who get pregnant, uh, need abortions sometimes. And I guess, you know, I mean, the problem medically is they're taking testosterone and they don't think they can get pregnant, but they still can because you can't fool Mother Nature. Mm-hmm. So, you know, then they want to terminate the pregnancy that they didn't think they were capable of because they thought they were men now, apparently. But you can't even find out the number of people who have become pregnant who are trans. That's a number that nobody has even asked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I want to suggest to you that it's a very tiny piece of the pie that we should not be uh, setting national policy based upon, that, that we're now going to call women pregnant people because some trans women, men, some trans men mm-hmm. can can still get pregnant. I'm sorry, I'm not. That last comment, I, I really do remain somewhat confused as to what the aim is for the, the, the folks. But anyway, um, she's bill. She's also serving on an advisory board for, uh, two nonprofits. A is for, which uses art and storytelling to end abortion stigma and shame and the women's reproductive rights assistant project. You know, she's, she's launched now. She is, she's the face of a generation to say that there is somehow a war on her body and a war on her rights because people have said, you know what, there are two lives involved in every pregnancy and we should have equal rights for all human beings based on our shared humanity, not based on whether or not we've been born yet. And for me, this is so sad because um, she's young. I believe all these people are exploiting her. 
She's very, uh, she's a very strong communicator, and she's obviously got the courage of her convictions. But I believe that there will come a day when she comes to regret the lives lost at her behest. And when she matures some, uh, she will not be able to go back and undo this. Because everyone, Bill, who promotes for abortion is part of the collective blood guilt mm -hmm. of abortion. And she most certainly is by leading women and people down this path. It's very sad to me. And I, and I do pray for her. I'm not angry at her. I no. understand how she got where she is. And I understand all the forces that are exploiting her youth and her um, brilliance. And for me, it's just a really, very sad time. And Kim, let's not be surprised by the language that gets used because they're very careful about how they script language. You know, when you were earlier before the break talking about you can go online and get the pill and they're letting you know it's just so you can return to your regular period. Yes. That to me is evil. Yes, because we know from the science of embryology that from conception forward, sometimes you'll hear the term fertilized egg. There's no such thing. That's not a medical term. Once the egg is fertilized by the sperm, a new, distinct, living, whole human being comes into creation. It's called a zygote at that point. It's not a fertilized egg. It's no longer an egg. It's now part of something else, the zygote, right? And so from that moment of conception forward, there's a distinct, living, whole human being. And the idea that you missed a period means you can just start up your period and there's no other life involved is a deception. It's a lie. It's a fiction. It's fake news. And it's a selling point for abortion uh, for women who are um, maybe in desperate circumstances, but definitely don't want an interruption in their lives. And so they give them a moral justification by erasing the child, first in their language and secondly in reality. Very troubling. So, so troubling. But you do, you do a, um, I appreciate you coming and telling these stories and I know there's a Supreme Court case going up. Um, is it this week uh, regarding the state of Mississippi? Uh, you know, I don't know the status on this okay. Mississippi case, so I won't comment. But yeah, I did fine. see a story today that in Kentucky, the AG has asked to um, be a part of the case that the Supreme Court will hear about Kentucky's restrictions on abortion. And it looks as though the Supreme Court will allow him to do that. Um the abortion business that is uh, involved in this case on the other side has said, you know what, that's not fair. He reneged on a deal where he said he would not do that. <laughs> but, but sure enough, Kentucky AG, uh, I think his name is, let's find, his name is uh, Daniel Cameron. Okay. He, he, he an African-American attorney general in Kentucky, and he intends to uh, speak on the case, and the Supreme Court looks as though they're inclined to hear it. You know, this is why a lot of scrambling is happening around chemical abortions and sure. self-managed. They used to be called DIY abortions, mm -hmm. doing it at home with pills, um, is because a lot of the cases that are coming to the Supreme Court are being argued under new strategies, and they're being done so to great effect. Yeah. Praise God. Kim, thanks so much for being uh, on the show today. Always great to talk to you. I miss you too, Bill. Thanks, thanks for thanks, having Kim. me on. You bet. Kim Cotola. Has been my guest. Let's take a short break and then I'm going to welcome Monica Groves and Sheriff Jim all coming up next. It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. 
And this isn't a heavy hour because we were talking to Kim Pitola about uh, pro-life issues. And that is kind of a difficult topic uh, because it's gut-wrenching. And this one is going to be much like the last half hour because we're going to talk about domestic abuse today. I've got uh, Monica Groves and Sheriff uh, James Stewart in my studio. And I want to say welcome to both of you. Mm, Thank you very much. Yeah, we're so glad to talk about this very difficult topic. Um, And... You both are coming at it from very interesting perspectives, and I think it's be good if I can ask both of you questions, uh, and that would be one at a time. Does that work Fair for enough. both of you? Absolutely. All right, yes. who wants to go first? Jim. I can jump in. Jim, okay. <laughs> All right, so tell me if you're seeing changes uh, in the number of cases of domestic violence in our community. The cases, unfortunately, uh, have either been consistent or increasing. Okay. And, and, of course, some of that is because people have been cooped up in their homes mm-hmm. a lot more than usual. Uh, people are facing added stresses in their lives, uh, which creates a, a difficult situation. And uh, in Anoka County alone, as an example, I mean, our folks are looking at about 12,000 calls a year in, for Anoka County law enforcement, wow. domestic-related. Wow. So when you're making a call to a home, you're having this call to a, uh, a home, and, and it's a domestic violence call. Um, how dangerous is that for law enforcement? Well, every single situation is different, and it certainly can be one of the most dangerous situations law enforcement can respond to. Uh, sometimes you go into a home and everyone is cooperative. Even if an assault has occurred, the people might uh, calm down when they see the uniform. And other times, it's not uncommon for, as an example, if the uh, male party is a suspect, the deputies might go to make an arrest, and at that point, not only does the suspect or the male begin fighting, but the female uh, has been known to jump on the deputy's back and become an additional struggle when she realizes the situation is going to get even worse. Mm-hmm. And you have a um, personal interest and you personally care about this issue, which makes me love you instantly. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so tell me a little bit about your personal and, pro- and professional goal to address this. On the personal level, you know, I was uh, um, a knee-high to a grasshopper, as my grandmother would say when mm-hmm. I was a little kid. I grew up in a home as a product of multiple divorces and a stepdad who was uh, an alcoholic and physically abusive. And so it was something that I grew up seeing regularly. Uh, I was, I guess, lucky enough to be mature at a young age to know it was wrong and uh, to recognize that it, it, it wasn't the way you're supposed to be. And so as I came up through high school, I became an explorer scout with the West St. Paul Police Department nice. and realized that was the calling for me. And again, the, the the shorter version is that going into a career of law enforcement now after uh, 30 years in law enforcement, we do what we can at whatever stage we are in our lives to try and make a positive impact. And for me, uh, domestic violence and creating youth champions has been two of my major uh, efforts. Great. Now let me shift to you, Monica, if I can, Monica Groves. And we're curious, as we talk about domestic abuse, what what does that really mean? Do we have like a, a good working definition for that? Well, domestic abuse actually encompasses domestic violence, which we think of as the physical abuse, mm-hmm. the battering. You've heard of battered women. Yes. That. But it also encompasses emotional abuse, spiritual abuse, financial abuse, sexual abuse. So the domestic abuse term is actually the more encompassing term, and it really means exercising power and control over another person to do the kinds of things that actually deconstruct them or take away from 
their own self-worth, their dignity, their ability to choose, all of those factors that make life good for us, the, the things that we enjoy doing, but they put a person in a place of risk, isolation, so that they can't flourish, they don't mm-hmm. grow. That's really tough. I know you. a lot of your work is focused on those who end up leaving their home due to domestic abuse. So maybe you would touch on uh, the idea of when is it okay to stay and when should someone leave? Staying and leaving is a uh, such a personal choice for a woman, and it's a risky one. And domestic abuse is never okay. But there are certainly women that stay in situations because they don't feel that they are in imminent harm. It doesn't mean that harm isn't being done. Uh, they may be in a situation where there is the psychological abuse or the emotional abuse going on, but they can survive from day to day. They don't feel like they are in danger. When they need to leave is when they are in danger and when they see their children in danger. And oftentimes that does include the violence factor. But it can be severe emotional abuse or psychological abuse or uh, the debilitating kinds of things that put people in a feeling of deep depression, anxiety, fear, always feeling like you don't, you can't do anything in the house without risking the anger factor coming mm-hmm. or those things. So a person has to determine what is, what is a safe home for me? Where, where do I feel like I, um, I am able to be the person that God wanted me to be? I think of it that way. Mm-hmm. That's I what I like think that. about it, yeah. the dwelling place. If, uh, if you're not able to, to make the choices and live the life that is pleasing to God as you feel like that is right, then that might be the time to say what needs to change. And if communication can happen and help can be sought and people are receptive to it and change can come within the home, then leaving isn't going to be the thing that has to happen. But if no one is receptive to changing or hearing what's happening and why it's dangerous or, or um, debilitating then that's the time to to think about other options. Mm -hmm. Monica Groves is the Mission Advancement Director of The Dwelling Place. And if you would, uh, Monica, please tell me the difference between like a crisis shelter and a more of a transitional housing for for women that I think you're involved with. Yes. So The Dwelling Place within Minnesota is a transitional housing shelter. It's a home. They're homes. Uh, but when a woman leaves and she needs to leave quickly, and that's where Jim and the people that, you know, he serves with, when they enter in and they have to get a woman out of a difficult situation or she's fleeing and she needs a place to go, she will go to a crisis shelter. And a crisis shelter is a safe place and it's very important. And we have many within the state of Minnesota and many within the U.S. for the very reason that when people need something quickly, there needs to be a place they can go. There are people there who understand, they're going to believe them, and they're going to give them immediate help. But they can only stay for about 30, maybe up to 70 days. That's pretty long. Mm -hmm. Actually, 30 to 45 days is about the average for staying in a crisis shelter. And, And then what happens is a decision. Are they going to go back to the abuse situation? Do they have another alternative? Or will they look at a longer term transitional shelter? Um, a house that that they can come to, and that's where the dwelling place comes in, and other transitional housing opportunities. So, for instance, at the dwelling place here in Minnesota, a woman can stay with her children until she's ready to move into a place of her own. Mm. So that can be eight months, it can be a year, it can be a year and a half, it could be two years. Life-saving too, isn't it? It's very Mm life-saving, yes. 
So let me ask uh, Sheriff James Stewart, um, talk about the process available for law enforcement. What what can what is law enforcement? What can they use in these situations? Well, typically they're going to be responding to calls if it came from within the house or sometimes neighbors call. Uh, within Anoka County, we were proud to be uh, one of the first in the Midwest to develop a lethality assessment program. And so as deputies respond to a domestic situation, they have a sheet that they pull out with a series of questions that they're able to ask the victim. And that ser- that uh, series of questions then lays out a uh, lethality percentage, if you will, the likelihood of it being a really bad situation. And then that is uh, used as part, not just uh, assisting with advocacy, but assisting with prosecution and assisting in getting the victims in the situation the help that they need. But then, of course, the in Minnesota, we're fortunate that we uh, do have a mandatory arrest. If there's indications that an assault has occurred, we don't need the victim to want to pursue charges, which uh, not all states have that, and it can be very difficult mm-hmm. to remedy the situation sometimes without arrest. Uh, I, I kind of subscribe to the fact that you need to be held accountable for your behaviors uh, in order to modify those behaviors. And so we're fortunate in Minnesota that we are able to go in, identify that a situation uh, has involved violence, and we can make an arrest and and then refer the victim to advocates without uh, interference. That's exactly the kind of talk I want to hear from my sheriff. <laughs> I want to hold people accountable. I like that. So I would imagine when you were making these calls yourself, you're a sheriff now, you're not doing Correct. these day-to-day calls anymore. But when you were in law enforcement as part of this, uh, your career, what was it like for you to be involved in these domestic calls and how did it affect your psyche and what was it like at the end of the day? That's a great question. Um, I, it was certainly, as I said, every call was different. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, one of the things that really spoke to me as to why we needed to be engaged the way we were is because more often than not, there seemed to be kids in the house. And those kids are learning those behaviors by seeing those behaviors. And so we would, the deputies, officers uh, across our nation find themselves in a difficult spot because they will go in uh, to a hostile, dangerous, potentially situation always being mindful of weapons and threats and those type of things, but at the same time being mindful of the individuals uh, that are involved and trying to not just help the victim but to gather the facts, you know, just the facts, ma'am, is, <laughs> is uh, <laughs> take you back a few decades. But mm-hmm. um, at the same time, seeing the kids that are impacted. And for me personally, it was one of those situations, as you were, as an example, putting handcuffs on dad, uh, seeing these kids that are just mortified at what's going on, I would always make it a point to come back and talk with the kids. You know, uh, Dad's made a mistake. He's going to be okay. Mom's going to be okay. Um, understand that the behavior you saw isn't how we should be treating each other. And try mm-hmm. to point them in the right direction because it might be the only time in their lives right. they hear some positive reinforcement and to understand that people make mistakes. People can learn from mistakes. And although today was bad, tomorrow's a new day. And so we try to refocus and help help. The families regroup, and of course, then uh, tragically, the the deputies then just kind of pass off to Monica's team, and and they they go to the next call. So it's not a a lot of long term intervention that we can be a part of, but working together with uh, advocacy groups like the Dwelling Place allows us an opportunity then to know that we're we're leaving them in good hands. Mm-hmm. Is is that uh, examples of personal compassion, or is that what you are training your your deputies and, uh, and uh, personnel to go back and say, Dad made a mistake? Yes. Okay. Um, I, I'd say both because it, it's certainly something. I mean, we 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 do train in domestic response. We have a, you know three month training program after they've completed their college and their skills training program and come yeah. to us. 
but within that, uh, I, I think uh, I, I'm proud to say I, I know that we strive to hire the best and we don't look for, I always say consistently, a resume is important, mm-hmm. but the content of your moral character and Amen. the direction of your compass is way more important to me when I'm hiring people. And so I, I think that is the case for most law enforcement. I mean, uh, I, I've been all, all across the country and I can tell you that most people that choose to put on a badge choose to do it for the right reason. Yeah, thank you for that, uh, Sheriff James Stewart. Monica, let me ask you this. Uh, the abuse and all of these uh, trauma-related uh, issues are kind of a generational cycle, aren't they? It, it brings that it's, about, it's absolutely. It's important to understand this, uh, to deal with it, doesn't it? It does. Trauma comes to all of us. I mean, we all experience it in one way or another. But for children, and that's what I appreciate about what Sheriff Jim was saying, is that to understand that for a child, they're they're taking things in and they're seeing it with what they wish would be happening and what they're afraid of what's happening and they also internalize it and feel like maybe somehow they were at fault. They were the ones that caused it. Mm-hmm. So trauma can happen through experience violence or abuse or neglect. It can be witnessing the violence within the home or the community. It can be having a family member die. And the statistics sadly show that many times when a domestic violence situation ends very badly, children are present in the home and they see that. But even if that, if someone doesn't die, they feel the, the, sh- the shame, the hurt, the fear, all of those things. And if they're not given an opportunity to work that through and have someone talk to them and help them express their feelings and their emotions, then it continues on. Mm-hmm. I remember meeting a man at a church in, uh, in the South Metro, probably in his 80s. He stood at our display table, and he just stood there, and he just shook his head back and forth and back and forth. And I said, sir, may I ask what's going on for you? He said, I can still see the face of the guy. I still see the face of the guy, and I just get so angry inside. And I said, who are you talking about? He says, the man who beat my mom. Mm. I said, did you ever tell anyone? He says, no, you're the first one. Wow. So you think about how long... Does that live within someone? And to be able to, what we find with the children's program at the dwelling place is the opportunity to help them work through the trauma and heal from that and, and be in a nurturing environment where they are safe, where they feel that they can express themselves and there's no effect mm-hmm. except just support. Sheriff, I've got a question from a listener. In domestic dispute calls, is there a statistic measuring the percentage of instances that are drug or alcohol influenced? I'm not aware of a statistic off the top of my head, but I can say that the majority of the homes that we go to are going to involve drugs or alcohol uh, or mental illness illness or a combination thereof. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, those are very often contributing factors. Yeah. We'll take a little break. My guests are uh, Monica Groves from the uh, Dwelling Place right here in the Twin Cities and also the Sheriff of Anoka County, Sheriff James Stewart. Take a short break and be right back. If you have a question or comment, uh, let me know what it is. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Thank you. 
Well, I love it when guests come into the studio. I have Monica Groves with me and Sheriff James Stewart. Sheriff is the uh, sheriff of Anoka County, and Monica is the mission advancement director of the Dwelling Place right here in the Twin Cities. It 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 helps women that are caught in domestic abuse and violence uh, get some reprieve, a place to go and live and be safe. So, Sheriff, let me ask you this: as as a community, what what role do we have? What can we do to help prevent or eliminate some of the domestic abuse and violence? I think the first thing we can do is share the message, let people know it's that you know, we know evil is alive and well, uh, d- that domestics uh, are certainly occurring uh, all around us. So be- become aware, uh, check out advocacy websites, learn what's going on in your neighborhood. It's going to be different around the nation and different from community to community. But as we learn more, we'll also learn how to get engaged and Every community, it seems, has different activities and events. And in this case, you know, this Saturday is the, the Dwelling Places Gala. Um, attend those things. Support these groups that are trying to make positive impacts to create hope and to create positive uh, futures for some of the folks that are caught up in this cycle. Uh, get involved. Uh, even if you, if you can't make the events, uh, support those, those advocacy groups. We need people to be engaged. And as important is for men to play a part. I attend a lot of events every year, and they're they're well attended. That's a great thing. The majority of the crowds are still women, and when ninety eight percent of our our uh, perpetrators are males, we know that the males need to get in the game. And so, whether it's you know telling your daughters with clarity how important they are and how valued they are and how they should be treated, or telling your sons what's the proper way to treat a lady, um, and even just if it's locker room talk. Be the one that's going to step up and make sure you're holding people accountable for their actions and their behaviors, which isn't always comfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, us, us as uh, good Christians, we're supposed to just, you know, be quiet and not, not be uh, aggressive or, uh, you know, <laughs> create behavior that draws attention. But even Jesus tosses temple tables at some point. And so I, I encourage people to w- understand what it means to intervene and to do the right thing, even when it's uncomfortable, and to get engaged in this fight. Yeah, we we're just saying during the break that we don't, talk about this out loud very often do we Monica we don't and actually it's it's not a hard conversation to begin Uh, and actually once we begin it it's amazing how many people feel free to Mm. share uh, something that they know either personally or a family member or a friend and when we can begin that conversation we really open up a door that needs to be opened and I would add to what Sheriff Jim has said is we see uh, community help by volunteers People who care about children, who come and help with tutoring, they help with child care so that women can have time to learn things and grow. Uh, they help with projects. Uh, we're faith-based, and we don't rely on government funding, mm-hmm. but we do rely on volunteers and help, and most organizations do. In fact, most websites will have a way of saying, get involved, or ways you can get involved and help, and just to pay attention to that and go looking. It, it doesn't take much work to find ways to make a difference and also to become educated, to look for those indicators that say something isn't right here. Something may be happening here, and how can I help this person with the needs that they have? Yeah, what kind of questions do you ask someone that maybe is in your circle that you might feel suspicious that they might be involved in something that's difficult at home? How do you broach that conversation? Well, one one first one is to say, do you feel safe? Oh, okay. Do you? And, you know, when was the last time you got to just go out and do something that you love to do? Is that okay? 
in your environment? Do you feel like you're being taken care of and that your living environment is healthy? Can you speak up and say whatever's on your mind without fear? And uh, is your environment one, living environment one, where you're living on eggshells? Is there something you can't say because you're afraid of what might happen if you do? Sometimes, you know, those are just open-ended questions. Mm-hmm. That's really, really helpful. Um, Sheriff Jim, what is, in your opinion, what has really changed the most in the last several years when it comes to domestic abuse and violence? I'm sure COVID's had something to do with it because people have been so cooped up. Maybe that's the biggest change, and you've already answered that question. Yeah, but that, That's definitely a huge change. I think, uh, again, some of the changes that have occurred is uh, law enforcement awareness and law enforcement ability to intervene. You don't have to go back too many years. Uh, fortunately, in Minnesota, it's at least been uh, a couple of decades. But uh, it, it's, you know, every neighborhood's dirty little secret. It wasn't being reported. Um, so now we've we've created a society where it is more reported, even if the neighbors have to call, but some people are calling. Now law enforcement is responding. Again, decades ago, they might come in and say, everybody snap out of it and grow up, and they'd leave. Now they're able to respond, intervene, have appropriate resources, have lethality assessment uh, plans in place, and be able to actually make arrests and make a difference and start that cycle of uh, hopefully getting that family the help they need. Mm-hmm. Monica, I know that the dwelling place here in the Twin Cities is a Christ-centered ministry. Um, does a woman have to be a Christian in order to come and be part of that mm. wonderful ministry? No, they do not. We're very honest as we talk with uh, women who inquire about what we do and who we are, that we are Christ-centered, which means we're going to live the love of Christ and welcome women who are in need, who are trying to get out of a bad situation, an abusive situation, so that they can heal, so that they can uh, move forward in their life. Mm -hmm. They don't have to love the Lord. They don't have to have a relationship. In fact, many don't. But what we want is to be faithful and to share the love of Christ in every way possible. So that means going with them to a order protection meeting, Mm -hmm. or that means helping them work through credit card issues that they may have, or housing, or employment, or driving. We have women who have never learned how to drive. For us to demonstrate the love of Christ is to help them get a license so that they can get a job, so that they can have a house. Uh, For their children, it's to love them and to help them to know that they can be children Mm -hmm. and, and be welcome. Yeah. Do some women say, I'm in trouble, but I don't want to report because I don't want Sheriff Jim showing up at the door and creating trouble, which is going to come back to bite me at some point? Yeah, that's not uncommon at all. I, I would not no. I would not be surprised. Well, and, and as we look at the statistics, I mean, and, and I, I have some before me, but... Please share them. The, the short list would be that every year, 10 million people in the United States are victims of a physical domestic violence, uh, which comes out to be an average of about 20 people being victimized every single minute. Wow. Uh, Every nine seconds, a woman is assaulted or beaten in the U.S. One in three females will experience physical violence by an intimate partner. That's the person who's supposed to be caring about them, supposed Mm -hmm. to be loving them. Uh, One in three female murder victims are killed by intimate partners. And uh, the economic impact of domestic violence exceeds $8.3 billion with a B annually in the U.S. And I think the most alarming statistic uh, or detail about these statistics is the fact that we know a large percentage of domestics are never reported. 
Boy, we live in a broken world, don't we? We absolutely do. A broken, fallen world. There's so much pain out there. These statistics are very sobering. Thank you for coming and sharing the story. Um, If I live in another part of the country, because there's people all over the U.S. listening right now, and I want to get to a place uh, like the dwelling place, how would I go about that? Most common is to go to the web and search for domestic shelters. Okay. Start there, or there are numbers to call, and on our website, thedwellingplacemn.org, we have those numbers posted. Nice. And women can call that, and they can talk through with someone and identify, am I in in an abusive situation? Am I in an unsafe? Uh, And how do I get to safety, and who will help me? And if all else fails, I believe the number is 211 for domestic abuse reporting, but 911 can always be called. Is that yeah, correct? It's because it's not consistent in every city, I would encourage people to call 911. Okay. 911. When yeah. in doubt, call us out. We want to make sure that people are getting the help they need. Yeah. Perfect. Thank yep. you so much for being here in the studio today. You're welcome back anytime. Thank you very much. Thank yep. you so much. Monica Groves and Sheriff Jim Stewart have been my guests. We'll take a little break. When we come back, we're going to continue our 5 o'clock uh, Wednesday Central Time study on Old Testament characters. Dr. Peter Kapsner and I are going to be hosting Dr. David Clark. They're in the green room right now talking away. So that'll be all up next. Be right. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.